And now, Rob McDonald. I just want to add something about the, uh, the, the duck tours. Um, I, I recommend them highly. Uh, my wife teaches seventh and eighth grade history, and a couple years ago, uh, we took her class down on a, a wonderful field trip to Washington, D.C., and uh, we included a duck tour. And my, my wife's uh, best friend works in the agriculture department. She wanted to join us, so we actually arranged uh, the, the bus driver, or skipper, I guess is the appropriate term. Uh, Captain Kent was his, his name. Uh, <laughs> To, to stop in front of the agriculture department so we could pick up our friend. And, uh, and he did, and uh, we had a wonderful tour. And the uh, end of the story is that our friend and our bus tour driver are now engaged to be married. So uh, you never know. You never know what could happen. Uh, when I see uh, those duck tour buses, I think romance. Um, <laughs> And, and it kind of goes to show that uh, it's difficult to predict uh, exactly what will form a union, um, what will cause people to, to come together. <laughs> and uh, the American Revolution, of course. <laughs> the American Revolution was in some ways a, a very unlikely thing because, uh, you know, we have all these different colonies. What united them against the British was a mutual desire to be left the heck alone. They didn't come together because they wanted to impose their will upon one another. They came together because they wanted to help each other resist others who would impose their will. And um, so America's union and our unity is really kind of peculiar and maybe even unique. We, we do not unite um, and fight a revolution so that we could get bossed around. It, it's really just the opposite. And, and, and so throughout American history, um, there, there are these, these tensions. Tensions between forces that would draw us closer together and force us uh, to, to live under a regime of increased centralized decision-making and, and forces that kind of remember the, the origins and cause us to uh, reflect upon the fact that the purpose of government, at least in our tradition and our history, is liberty. And that's worth considering when you think about um, the Constitution and how it came together. There is a, a precarious balance. Probably most people in this room would agree. There's a precarious balance um, between uh, chaos and anarchy and disorder and the state of nature, right, where your rights aren't safe and uh, a government that is strong enough to protect your rights, but not so strong that it can, can endanger your rights, that it can violate your rights. And, and where to strike that balance has been something that has animated debate in America for you know, well over 200 years. And of course, that was a central focus of the debate over the Constitution. Many people thought that the, the government we had during the course of the American Revolution, our first constitution, the Articles of Confederation, many thought that that was too weak, uh, that there was a danger um, that things would spin out of control, that we did not have enough centralized power um, to pay the bills and defend our borders and protect individual Americans. Others, of course, feared plans to embrace a new constitution and said, you know, we've only had 
the articles for a couple years now. And uh, some might want to characterize them as a complete abject failure, but we have achieved some kind of significant things. For one thing, uh, in 1787, we sort of finalized plans to uh, iron out um, conflicting land claims. The states, um, when they were colonies, all were granted within their colonial uh, charters territories, some you know, expanding as far west as the Pacific Ocean. Uh, Connecticut, for example, my home state. Typically, we don't think of Connecticut and its empire, but, but it had one, or at least it claimed to have one. It claimed to own all the land west of Pennsylvania. So, you know, draw the, the line from Connecticut, skip over uh, New York and Pennsylvania. And of course, Connecticut disputed where Pennsylvania ended, but then continue west. And, and Connecticut had its western reserve in Ohio and claimed all the land all the way across the continent to, to Reno and Sacramento and San Francisco. This is Connecticut's empire. And yet, and yet Pennsylvania laid a similar claim. It claimed to own all the land to the west. And, 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 and Connecticut's western reserve, um, that, that sort of northeastern uh, part of Ohio, there were conflicts between settlers who had been uh, you know, issued title to their land from two different um, political jurisdictions, from Connecticut and from Pennsylvania. Fighting broke out. There could have been a war between Connecticut and Pennsylvania. And that would be a really, really bad thing for Pennsylvania. <laughs> or so I say as, as someone from Connecticut. Of course, the, the Pennsylvanians, uh, their, their origins were with the Quakers, um, who were pacifists. Uh, I don't know if, when you were uh, kids, if you ever had BB guns and um, you know, used as targets, uh, any containers that you had around the kitchen, uh, you bring them outside, put them on a stump. Um, I always used a Quaker oats container. I don't know if any of you all did as well. I think there's something about you know, the roundness of it um, but also, I know my parents gave this to me because they loved me very much, um, and they knew that I might shoot at the Quaker, but he wouldn't shoot back at me. So, you know, they would never give me like a Colonel Sanders uh, bucket. <laughs> never, never. Um, what, what sort of neighbors would Americans be? Would they get along? Um, would they be friends? Or uh, would they uh, be feisty and fiery, and would they fight with one another? Um, the Constitution hoped uh, that with a little bit more government, it could resolve um, some of those tensions and mediate them in, 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 in a national capital. Um, but of course, we know that as soon as the ink was dry in the document, people began to disagree about what the Constitution meant. We have, uh, as president, of course, George Washington, but um, some of our most uh, really important political figures and political thinkers um, soon took center stage um, in a debate about what the Constitution um, should be all about and how it should be interpreted. You have, of course, Alexander Hamilton. You have James Madison, often called the father of the Constitution. You have Thomas Jefferson. And, and, and these are a pair who certainly are not uh, fated to be enemies. Um, up to this point, they had been pretty good friends. Uh, Jefferson and Madison, uh, their relationship, their friendship went all the way back to 1776. Uh, Madison and, and Hamilton, of course, they were the dynamic duo of the Constitutional Convention. You know, when Hamilton was actually there and not you know, scampering back to New York when he was upset because things weren't going his way, they were um, the, the moving, animating forces uh, behind this thing. And, and of course, uh, once the Constitution uh, had been proposed to the states, 
Uh, they joined up with John Jay to write the Federalist Papers, and they're explaining um, to all of New York and all of America what the Constitution meant and what the basis of it was and um, why people should not fear it and the powers um, that it gave to this new national government that it invented. But they're also explaining the Constitution to each other. And they feel really confident that they're completely simpatico, that they are in complete agreement about what the Constitution means and what sort of government it will create. And, and, and yet, um, when the government goes into operation, when Alexander Hamilton is uh, named as George Washington's Secretary of the Treasury, and Hamilton proposes things like uh, the funding and assumption of states' revolutionary war debts uh, or a national bank, Madison uh, is sort of open-mouthed and in shock. He, he can't believe that uh, Hamilton would think that this, uh, these sorts of proposals are constitutional. The National Bank, for example, Hamilton uh, should have known, Madison thought, that that was discussed at the Constitutional Convention. People discussed the possibility of authorizing a national bank. And they explicitly made the decision not to include it in the Constitution. And, and now Hamilton was saying that you could read between the lines and that it would be necessary and, and, and proper to allow a national bank. And Madison thought this was evidence of you know, real chicanery on, on Hamilton's part, that, that he had really been deceitful, not only to uh, the American people, but also to Madison, also to himself. And then Hamilton, he, uh, he had a, a, a different um, set of thoughts about Madison. He thought that um, you know, he and Madison uh, had been getting along just wonderfully well, and uh, he hadn't changed. Hamilton didn't think that he himself had changed. It was Madison who had changed. And who had changed Madison? Who changed Madison was, was Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Hamilton writes in 1792 this letter to a friend of his named Edward Carrington. And it's almost like, uh, I call it Hamilton's eighth grade letter because it, it, it's almost as if they're in junior high school and uh, they have this weird sort of uh, friendship relationship. And, uh, you know, they go to summer camp together, Madison and Hamilton. And, you know, all the, the best, best buds in the world. They're making each other these little, like, friendship bracelets. Uh, you know, the whole bit. Constantly text messaging each other. The whole, all of it. Um, but then, and, and Jefferson, of course, is on vacation. He's in France, right, at working as our ambassador. Uh, and then junior high school begins again. And the school year starts. And now, uh, Madison, he just wants to sit in the cafeteria with Jefferson. He doesn't want to hang out with Hamilton anymore. This makes Hamilton really, really mad. Um, <laughs> so you get the sense that it's not just principle, right, and, and politics, but there are some personal uh, dynamics going on here and some personal feelings that have been hurt. And of course, all of these men um, are, are trying to work and operate um, in, in a government that is headed by George Washington. And I'll talk more about George Washington this evening, um, but he has the unenviable task of trying to marshal all these geniuses. Um, he is uh, a man who uh, intentionally chooses people, um, not because he thinks that they will agree with him or because he thinks that they will agree with each other, but instead because he, he thinks that they're competent individuals who have ideas that are worth considering. Um, and things you know, that, that they're going to say that are worth listening to. And Washington, he tries very much to stay above the fray in what becomes um, a real partisan battle. 
Um, one of the things, of course, that the Constitution doesn't anticipate um, is the rise of political parties. Um, it was assumed, as, as Madison assumes in, in Federalist 10, that uh, people will disagree, of course. That's what we have um, in a republic. We have disagreement and debate. But Madison never thought that we would disagree um, in unison on everything, right? That there would be one camp and another camp that would, more often than not, always be on the same side of, of different controversies. And yet, in the 1790s, that's how it seemed to turn out. Um, we have on uh, the Republican side, the Jeffersonian Republican side, Thomas Jefferson and James Madison. We have on the Federalist side, uh, not only Alexander Hamilton, but also the Vice President, um, John Adams. And sort of trying to stay above it all and trying to sort of stay in the middle is, is George Washington. Um, sometimes Washington would side with Jefferson, other times he would side with Hamilton, he probably sided with Hamilton more often than he sided with Jefferson, uh, but he really tried to remain a president above party. Not an easy thing to do. And despite his best efforts, Washington was drawn into a number of different controversies um, over America's stance in the world. Um, should we retain our alliance with France, you know, which served us so well during the American Revolution? Um, should we uh, you know, kiss and make up with Great Britain? Um, through, through things such as the Jay Treaty, um, which would uh, end some of our ongoing, lingering post-war disputes with the British and firm up our relations as trading partners. Um, what to do? And of course, in France, we have the, the French Revolution um, brewing and developing and blossoming and then wilting and then spinning out of control. Um, are we uh, in an alliance with the old French government, the new French government? the French people? Um, should we have an alliance with, with anyone? Shouldn't America steer a neutral course and be friends with, with all the world? Um, these were some of the questions that were dividing the Washington administration, as well as what do you do when you have people domestically who refuse to obey the law? One of the, uh, the programs that Hamilton proposed was a series of, of internal taxes within the United States, including one on whiskey. And whiskey in, in the western parts of the country, specifically in western Pennsylvania, um, was, had a lot of wonderful uses, as perhaps some of you know, um, but one of them was, was currency. They really didn't have much actual money in the back country. And in western Pennsylvania, people like to use uh, whiskey as currency because it had a, a near universal appeal. Um, it, it, it got better with age, if anything. And uh, it was something that everybody would, would accept and, and barter with. Uh, the tax on whiskey had to be paid in, in cash that they did not have. If they uh, were, were cited for having a still and not reporting it and not paying taxes on it, these farmers had to, to travel um, for, for weeks to go to court in Philadelphia, which is a real burden upon them, especially if it hit at the wrong time of the growing season. So there's a really you know, up, big uprising in Western Pennsylvania. And, Washington uh, was thinking about the 1780s. He was thinking about Shays' Rebellion in Western Massachusetts, how uh, a lot of people criticized the government of Massachusetts uh, for not being able to immediately put down that uprising. And so Washington, for the first few miles, um, rode at the head of an army that he dispatched out to Western Pennsylvania. Um, and then when he turned back uh, toward home, it was Hamilton who was in charge, which went out there ready to crush uh, a rebellion that really pretty much 
dissipated. Um, so we have a really rocky start as a nation. And, and some of these classic questions you know, are very much in the air. And uh, the debate begins as soon as George Washington announces that he's not going to seek a third term, that he is going to um, step down, retire from the presidency, return to Mount Vernon. And uh, like the dropping of a hat, uh, as soon as that announcement is made, um, the parties sort of go into high gear. And uh, it's pretty much understood that the candidate for the Republicans will be uh, Thomas Jefferson, and the candidate for the Federalists will be John Adams. And uh, these two men themselves had been great friends. They had been great partners. They had been two key figures um, throughout the uh, struggle for independence and beyond. Back in 1776 at the, the Continental Congress, um, Jefferson and Adams, they were the, the Batman and, and Robin of independence. You know, Jefferson is the, the, the pen of independence. Adams is the mouth of independence. Adams urged Jefferson to write the declaration. They were both on the committee charged with doing so. Jefferson said, oh no, you should do this. You've been at the forefront of this movement much longer. Um, Adams said, no, you must do it for three reasons. One, uh, I, John Adams, am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. Number two, you, Thomas Jefferson, are very much otherwise. He's very, very popular and well-liked. Um, and three, you can write 10 times better than I can. So Jefferson wrote the declaration, but it, it was in, in many respects the, the manifestation of John Adams's greatest project. And of course they had similar lives. They, they went back to their home states where the action really was. Um, they helped, uh, in Adams's case, craft a new constitution for Massachusetts. Jefferson became governor of Virginia and helped reform the laws there. Um, they both ended up doing diplomatic duty in France with Benjamin Franklin. Um, when Franklin um, returned to the United States, Jefferson was elevated as our ambassador there. Adams became our ambassador after independence was recognized by the British to the court of St. James. And, uh, you know, these men, they traveled uh, around Europe together. They, one, one trip they were traveling and, uh, you know, I think they were staying in youth hostels and riding Brit Rail and all that good stuff. But uh, they, they stopped in Stratford-on-Avon and even back then, the home of, of the bard himself, William Shakespeare, was, was open to tourists. So they paid whatever uh, fee uh, it cost to get inside. And they, uh, they walked on in and they stood at the, the desk of William Shakespeare. And Jefferson uh, kind of looked at Shakespeare's desk and, and the chair behind it and got a glimmer in his eye, he reached into his pocket and he, he pulled out a pen knife. And he, and he used this pen knife and he whittled a little piece of wood off of Shakespeare's chair. And then he whittled another little piece of wood off of Shakespeare's chair. And he took one little piece of wood and he put it in his own pocket. And he took another piece of wood and he handed it to John Adams. B-F-F, -F, right? <laughs> Best friends forever. There was nothing, nothing that could separate these guys except politics. And the election of 1796, was a knockdown, drag out fight. They so much were not directly involved. We still were living in an era where the ethic was that you, you didn't seek office. Certainly no one was supposed to want to vote for anyone who wanted office. There was nothing scarier than giving power to someone who wanted power. If somebody wants power, 
That means they want to use power. And the last thing you want is to put someone in power who wants to exercise power. That's scary. And, and both sides understood that principle. So Jefferson, he's down at Monticello. He is uh, really removed from the scene. He, he claims that he receives no newspapers. There's a communications blackout between him and James Madison, um, who's really effectively leading the charge and organizing this campaign. Um, Adams is operating under similar circumstances, uh, but their names are put forward in the newspapers. Really harsh criticisms are levied against each person and their beliefs. Um, finally, it's a very close race, but the election of, of 1796 uh, ends up with Adams receiving a few more electoral votes than Jefferson. Um, by the rules uh, in the Constitution at the time, Adams then became the president, and Jefferson, having come in second, became the vice president. But he was really, as vice president, just a man who sat in the Senate and presided there. He really had no role in the Adams administration. Um, his real role was a critic of the Adams administration, especially when in response to um, things like uh, the quasi-war with France. France was harassing our shipping um, on the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, many Federalists thought this would be a wonderful thing if we were to, to go to war with France. It would bring us closer to Great Britain, and it would discredit the Jeffersonian Republicans, who in the public mind were associated with the French. I mean, no one wants to be associated with America's enemy. And, and yet, to his credit, John Adams um, steered away from war. He ended up making peace, but in the meantime, to sort of throw a, a bone um, to the, the dogs within his own party, he agreed to sign off on the Alien and Sedition Acts. You know, the ink had only been dry in the Constitution for seven years, um, but somehow John Adams saw some ambiguity in the statement, Congress shall make no law, because he made a law and signed off on a law that, that pretty clearly violated the First Amendment. And I think that backfired on John Adams. In the election of uh, 1800, um, Adams was really so unpopular, unpopular with both Jeffersonian Republicans and Federalists for things that he had done and for the course that he had steered that the Federalists really didn't want to um, cast this as an election between Adams and Jefferson. Instead, they tried to cast this as an election between Jefferson and George Washington, you know, who had just passed away. Washington died in December of 1799. Um, his, his, his stock had, had never risen higher. Um, he was beloved, it seemed, by everyone. And, and people were, were called upon to think of the election in this way. It was a choice between Washington um, and his tradition or, or Jefferson. And, and they were asked to look on this picture and, and, and on this. And here you have the late father of his country, you know, looking uh, fresh as a daisy. Here you, look like, you have uh, Thomas Jefferson um, looking like some carny who just woke up behind a dumpster. Um, you, have, you have beneath uh, George Washington um, books and on the spine is written uh, order, law, and religion. Um, bolstering Jefferson's image uh, are a number of radical French texts written by people like Condorcet and Voltaire and Tom Paine. Um, beneath George Washington, you have the Federal Eagle, and then they're giving a little bit too much away here, the British Lion. Um, underneath Thomas Jefferson, you have a serpent um, and uh, an alligator. Above Washington's head is, is a, a laurel wreath um, you know, beaming out rays of light above Jefferson, a snuffed out lamp, you know? It's pretty clear uh, which side this cartoon was biased toward. 
And uh, that's the true of, of just about all of the campaign literature that you might read from 1800. Uh, it, it was not a time of nuance. And whenever people say that politics nowadays are, are, are as fierce as they've ever been, are as dirty as they've ever been, um, you should really stop them and say, what about the election of 1800, right? I mean, it was really, in many respects, a low point. Um, and the, the tough thing about the election, too, is it didn't um, instantly uh, yield a victor. Of course, there was a tie in the Electoral College between the two Republican candidates, Jefferson as vice president, Aaron Burr. It was thrown to the um, House of Representatives. But of course, this is the House of Representatives that had been elected in 1798 at the height of the Quasi-War. It was dominated by the Federalists. A lot of the Federalists there thought that they could work with Burr, that they could work with Burr. Um, and really one of the great dramatic um, cliffhangers of American history. Um, who was the man who stepped in to help convince a lot of Federalists that they should really vote not for Aaron Burr, but instead for Thomas Jefferson? It's wonderful drama. Any guesses? It was Hamilton. Hamilton started this letter-writing campaign. He wrote to people like the, uh, the Delaware uh, congressman, James Baird, you know, who was a delegation of one, and they voted by state delegation, so he could swing his entire state's vote. Hamilton said, you know, we, uh, we disagree with Jefferson's principles, but at least he has principles, unlike Aaron Burr. And so Jefferson became the president of the United States. And, and he, early on, um, really wanted to, to write the, uh, the course of the ship of state. He wanted to correct um, what he saw as an imbalance. Um, we had been, been drifting too much toward order and regimentation and centralization and tyranny, many people believed, um, and gotten too far away from the ideal of liberty. And, and Thomas Jefferson's inaugural address, I mean, he, he laid out pretty clearly um, what America needed. He said we had all sorts of advantages. Our people were wonderful. Our land was wonderful. Our resources were wonderful. Our history was wonderful. Our traditions were wonderful. What else do we possibly need? One thing more, he said, a wise and frugal government which shall restrain men from injuring one another, shall leave them otherwise free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement, and shall not take from the mouth of labor the bread it has earned. This, he said, is the sum of good government. And so Thomas Jefferson sets to work. He uh, slashes the size of the federal workforce. Um, he does that in part by, by getting rid of all internal taxes. He repeals them, the whiskey tax, everything else. All the tax collectors are out of work. He, he downsizes the, uh, the military. Um, he does create during his, uh, his time in office, early on, it was one of his first priorities, the United States Military Academy. It seems that that is what he sees as the constitutionally allowable beginning of a national university for which he wanted a constitutional amendment um, so that he would have sanction for that. And he begins paying down the national debt. You know, despite doing away with all these internal uh, taxes, America's, or because of doing away with all these internal taxes, America's uh, economy really begins to boom and revenues uh, pour in. And uh, you know, even when things begin to sour a little bit, even when Jefferson begins to have to deal with major diplomatic problems of his own, even when we begin to prepare for what will become the War of 1812 and increase military spending, by the time Jefferson's done uh, with his uh, presidency, he pays off one third of the national debt. 
It's, it's gone, right? So we run surpluses and, and, and pay it down. Um, Jefferson, of course, uh, has some temptations of his own, and he could be criticized for growing government, um, fairly criticized for growing government. One of the, uh, the times in which he does um, is a real dilemma, and that, of course, is the acquisition of Louisiana. Jefferson, um, you know, some people try to portray him as some sort of hypocrite. I don't think he was a hypocrite. I think that he faced problems just as we face problems. It's not that we choose all the time between what's good and what's bad, what's right and what's wrong. A lot of times we have um, two good choices that each have some bad in them. And, and, or, or, or there are two good choices, but they're, they're mutually exclusive. And that certainly was the case with Jefferson and Louisiana. You know, uh, Louisiana, there's a lot to recommend adding Louisiana to the United States. It was a wonderful deal. Uh, James Monroe, Robert Livingston negotiate this. Napoleon um, has lost his, uh, his sugar colony in Haiti um, to an, an, a revolutionary revolution there of enslaved people and risen up and claimed their freedom. Um, he had thought that Louisiana would be the breadbasket for Haiti. You would never devote any land on Haiti to growing wheat or corn or anything like that. It would be foolish because it was so valuable for the production of sugarcane. But Louisiana, that would be where you would grow the, the, the food for the people of Haiti. But without Haiti, you didn't really need Louisiana. And at this point um, in, in France's history, in the Napoleonic Wars, he needed the cash. So for $15 million, uh, America can, can, without firing a shot, acquire all of this territory. And Jefferson thought that this would be a wonderful thing, um, in part because it would keep us out of war. Jefferson believed that whoever um, was in possession of this land would be our natural and habitual enemy. And if it was France, gosh, how could America try to maintain its, its diplomatic neutrality? You have the, the British still in possession of Canada, the France owned Louisiana, They'd be marching their, their troops through our territory. The, the, the notion that Britain and France would be at war, it was like a law of physics back then. You know, there was, there was no, no escaping it, seemingly. And so the uh, Louisiana Purchase seemed like a good way to, to prevent future wars for America and, and keep us um, out of any other nation's orbit. Jefferson himself said, if, if France solidifies its control of Louisiana, we will have to marry ourselves to the British fleet. In other words, we'll have to become allies of the British and lose some of our hard-fought independence in the process. And, and then there's the fact that Jefferson really saw in Louisiana the opportunity for Americans to preserve themselves as virtuous, um, small-r Republican farmers. We, we spoke about the, uh, the, the course of empire, the cycles of history. This is really how Jefferson saw America. This is how Jefferson wanted to continue to see Americans. Those who labor in the earth, he said, are the chosen people of God. They're hardworking, they're virtuous, they're independent, they're their own bosses, they're great citizens. And yet, our nation has a population that doubles every 20 years. And it's only a matter of time before we begin to sort of fill in. It's only a matter of time before like the, the big cities that he saw in Europe, we, we begin to get crowded in around one another. It's only a, a matter of time that in such circumstances we would begin to lose our character. And so 
He thought with Louisiana, we could prolong our time as this, this great Republican nation. That instead of developing through time, we could expand across space. Jefferson once wrote that with Louisiana, we would have room to farm for 100 generations. In another letter, maybe after a bottle of uh, wine, he wrote that with the possession of Louisiana, we would have room to farm for 1,000 generations. Now, of course, this is not Hamilton's vision for the future. This is not the Federalist vision for the future. When Hamilton envisioned America's future, he envisioned this. Hamilton wanted us to be something like Great Britain, which isn't a, a crazy thought. Great Britain at the time um, is, I, I suppose we could say, the second freest nation on the planet. And it is, in some respects, the most prosperous and probably without a doubt, the most powerful. This is not a, a bad ambition to have for the future of America. But of course, Jefferson knew where this would lead. You know, everybody who knew the story knew where this led. You know, here you have a president like George Washington. Here you have some decadent Roman emperor, right? And here you have to start all over again. So in some ways, Louisiana, it was crucial um, for Jefferson, crucial for the future of the United States. But in other ways, and this is the, uh, the real negative thing, maybe you've been scratching your head, maybe you don't see it. But Jefferson, he read the Constitution. He cared about the Constitution. And if you read the Constitution, you will see that nowhere is the national government empowered to add new territory. There's language about existing territory and how that will be divided up into territories and then states and brought into the Union. But there's no language about adding territory. And that kind of makes sense. I mean, if you think about the Constitution as a marriage between the North and the South, well, uh, my wife was uh, with me last night. Uh, a few of you um, uh, got, got to meet her. We've been married now for uh, 11 and a half years. You know, she's out with the kids. I think they're at the National Zoo. Who knows uh, who she'll meet, but what sort of surprise will, will fall upon me if uh, later this afternoon we link up, she's got a big smile on her face. She says, honey, I have news for you. What, what is it? What if Christine turned to me and said, Meet our new husband, Julio, right? I mean, and, and that's really what Louisiana was. This marriage between North and South was now this strange sort of menage a trois with the West. And it did change things. It changed things very much. What would the balance of power be? Would the West be more like the North? Or would it be more like the South? It would change the, the, the future of the country. It would change the relative degrees of power that these two regions would have. Jefferson, he knew this. He was pained by this. And, and he came up with what he thought was the proper solution. And you know, technically, it certainly was. It was to have a constitutional amendment authorizing the purchase of Louisiana. But you've seen those, uh, those shows, those cartoons usually, where people have a dilemma and they have like a little cartoon angel and a cartoon devil appear on their shoulders. I mean, Jefferson, in thinking this over and, and, and thinking about proposing this, this amendment, he has this cartoon devil appear on his shoulders. Actually, the, uh, the devil has James Madison's face. <laughs> and uh, Madison says, don't do it. Don't put forth this amendment. If you do, I mean, there, some bad things might happen. First of all, it could take a while 
France might withdraw from this deal. Second of all, uh, if you put this forward, it might not get ratified. We might not be able to get three quarters of the states to sign off on this. And then it would be explicit that this did not have the approval of the states. Madison said, this is important enough. This is necessary enough. And, and this is, you know, and they received lots of public uh, applause when the treaty um, was announced. Madison said, look, have the uh, Senate ratify the treaty. Have the House of Representatives appropriate the necessary funds and just be done with it. Don't, don't let this opportunity pass you by. And, and Jefferson swallowed hard and he made the decision to acquire Louisiana. So even under Thomas Jefferson, I mean, even under someone who cares deeply about principles, um, the government gains power. And uh, of course, there is the embargo to follow. Of course, um, there are all sorts of uh, things that will take place in the ensuing years. I have to give credit to James Madison. The embargo does not prevent us from going to war, ultimately, with Great Britain. But as president during the War of 1812, um, Madison really holds the line. He's one of the few presidents who doesn't do anything um, during wartime to compromise civil liberties. And if there ever was a war where you would have um, a pretense for doing so, the War of 1812 would be it. I mean, remember, John Adams, he signs the, the Sedition Act into law during the Quasi-War. I mean, it's not even a real war. The War of 1812, they're burning Washington, D.C. The government is on the run. New England is talking about secession, and Madison does not compromise civil liberties. So there really were, I think, some great Jeffersonian Republican um, achievements. And one was that um, from retirement, Jefferson could, could sort of look back and reflect upon um, his life and his career, and he did so um, with his old friend, turned enemy, turned friend again, John Adams. They're patched up their relationship, resumed their correspondence, wrote all these wonderful letters to each other about all those things we're not supposed to talk about, religion, politics, history. And uh, they sometimes looked at the world and, and thought that it was changing, almost beyond recognition. Um, certainly, the, uh, the American Revolution unleashed some forces that caused a great deal of change. There was also the Market Revolution, this new um, economic expansion that was changing the world around them. Jefferson once wrote to Adams that he felt surrounded by a new generation whom we know not and who knows not us. You know, there's probably always a generation gap, but back then it seemed like it was um, particularly great. Jefferson um, expressed his, his uh, greatest desire um, to live to see the 4th of July, 1826, the 50th anniversary of American independence, um, John Adams, uh, and, and, and Thomas Jefferson um, wrote uh, well into uh, May of 1826, and then they both began to fall ill. And uh, Jefferson down at Monticello was on his deathbed. He uh, was writing um, to Roger Waitman, the mayor of Washington, D.C., who had invited him to come here for the 50th anniversary celebration of independence. He had to beg off. He knew that his health wouldn't support it. Um, by the end of June, he was on his deathbed. Um, and at his bedside were three men, um, his, his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, his grandson-in-law, a West Point dropout named Nicholas Trist, um, and uh, his medical doctor, the medical professor at the University of Virginia, which he had established, uh, Dr. Robley Dunglison. 
And uh, Jefferson kept coming to and looking at the men and saying, is it the fourth? And as the days and hours passed, every time he asked, his voice would get a little bit more weak. Is it the fourth, he would say. And by the night of July 3rd, it seemed that Thomas Jefferson could go at any moment. And his eyes fluttered open and he asked in an almost inaudible way, is it the fourth? And, and Dr. Dunglison and Thomas Jefferson Randolph stood there sort of in stunned silence. It was up to Nicholas B. Trist to decide to actually lie to Thomas Jefferson. Yes, it is, Trist said. And, and according to uh, Trist, a big smile went over Jefferson's face. And a lot of historians have said that is it the fourth? Those are Jefferson's last words. But if you read Dunglison's account of the situation, he then tries to administer to, to Jefferson what is believed to be uh, another dose of, of life-sustaining medication. And then Jefferson turns to Dunglison and says, no doctor, nothing more. Right? He was ready to go. And it would be a horrible story if Jefferson um, died right then, right there, July 3rd, 1826. But he doesn't. He, he lives. He survives until noon the next day. And he dies 50 years to the hour after the ratification of the Declaration of Independence. Meanwhile, up in, up in Massachusetts, John Adams is on his deathbed. He dies around 5 p.m., his last words are, Thomas Jefferson still survives. And I'd like to think that at that moment, Thomas Jefferson lifted skyward on the wings of angels, is laughing his butt off, knowing that once again, he had proven John Adams wrong. <laughs> but, but of course, in another respect, maybe John Adams was right. Jefferson and his ideas and the ideas of the founding, they do still survive. You know, even in a new era, even new, in a new time, uh, marked by profound economic changes, uh, the market revolution um, was brought about by a number of different factors. One were advances in transportation. Um, you have the development of, of canals. Um, you have the development of steamboats. You have the development of railroads. Um, the first uh, railroad track in America was laid between the, uh, uh, the quarry in Quincy, Massachusetts and the future site of the Bunker Hill Monument. And the local dignitaries who were present when John Adams was laid to rest, immediately left his funeral ceremony and went to the ribbon-cutting ceremony to, to open up um, this new stretch of this new thing called a railroad. So wherever you look, things are changing. Um, at Jefferson's funeral service down at Monticello, the students from the University of Virginia um, walked up the hill, walked up to the top of the mountain, um, and were there when Jefferson was laid to rest uh, one of the students, you know, peering into the grave of Jefferson, this fallen pillar of the Enlightenment, will later drop out of the University of Virginia for financial reasons, will later end up uh, enrolling as a cadet at the United States Military Academy, but then dropping out, will later end up uh, in Baltimore, um, will gain fame and recognition as America's greatest romantic poet. Who are we talking about? Edgar Allan Poe, you know, was at Jefferson's funeral. Talk about, you know, the passing of the torch. Talking about, talk about two different representatives of two different generations. So lots was changing for good um, and for bad. Uh, the transportation revolution uh, increased the size of the, the practicable market for most Americans. 
At the time of the American Revolution, Philadelphia was the second largest English-speaking city on the planet. It had 30,000 people. It had 30,000 people. And the reason that cities couldn't really grow that large is because you needed to bring in the necessaries of life from a distance. You needed to, to ship in the food. You needed to ship in the firewood. And that was expensive. And that took a long time. But now, with canals, with steamboats, with railroads, the speed of transportation increased dramatically. Along the Erie Canal, for example, which was built between 1818 and 1825, this 364 mile stretch, uh, it used to uh, cost um, more than 19 cents uh, to ship a ton of goods a mile. Now it would cost only one cent, and the, and the speed of transportation increased fivefold. Even more significant gains with steamboats. I mean, river transportation had always been the way to go, but it was a one-way you know, uh, proposition because not only could you go downstream, but you had to get upstream, and that could be very time-consuming. It used to take three months to go from New Orleans to St. Louis. After the steamboat, three weeks. So significant advances in terms of speed as well as cost. The railroad just magnifies that. And then, of course, we have other technological uh, advancements that bring about the market revolution, the development of interchangeable parts, and the development of uh, a product that is probably um, the greatest thing ever to happen to America, as far as inventions are concerned, and the worst thing ever to happen to America. And of course, I'm talking about the cotton gin, right? The cotton gin um, makes it so that cotton was now a, a fabric that was affordable to the, the, the regular person. Um, cotton had been a really expensive uh, thing to make clothes out of because it was so time consuming to pick the little sticky seeds out of the cotton uh, fiber. And it would take one person a whole day just to clean by hand one pound of cotton. With the cotton gin, one person um, in one day could clean 50 pounds of cotton. Americans back then had a preference for seedless underwear. <laughs> I think most of us retain that, that presence still. It was now possible. I mean, before, regular people, they could not afford cotton, maybe the gentry, maybe royalty, but not regular people. And so the cotton gin led to a boom in the demand for, the co for cotton. And, and cotton quickly became, for America, what oil is for Saudi Arabia. By the time of the Civil War, it accounted for 60, 60% of our GDP. It was our number one export. And, and so this really helped to fuel the market revolution. Of course, it also helped to fuel the development of textile mills in the North and other factories in the North. And in, north, in the North, manufacturing um, was gaining, gaining momentum. And what you have um, is a sort of national economy that is more united than ever before. But it's more united than ever before because it's more diverse than ever before. If, if you have an apple tree and your neighbor has an apple tree, you're probably not gonna trade apples. If you have an apple tree and your neighbor has an orange tree, then you might swap. That's how trade works. And the South, during the market revolution, specialized in the production of cash crops, especially cotton. And of course, 
the, the development of, of cotton, the production of cotton, the growing of cotton, um, it required the South to turn toward um, an in increasing number, slave labor. Just as the North, you know, inspired by the ideas of the American Revolution, just as the North is beginning to institute plans for gradual emancipation. And you have really some tragic uh, results. The, the, in the state of New York, for example, in advance of the day of emancipation, a third of all the slaves are going to be sold south. A third of all the slaves, their, their masters knowing that their human property will no longer be theirs. Before the day comes, they, they, they sell them to the south. So the problem of slavery really ceases to be a national problem, and it becomes the peculiar institution of the South. It becomes concentrated in the South. In the North, you have factories that are producing not only textiles, but shoes and, and other such things. And uh, the owners of factories begin to, to clamor for, for government um, assistance. You think about uh, how it could possibly unfold. In New Haven, Connecticut, there was a clockmaker named Chauncey Jerome. And at least in America, he was one of the pioneers of using interchangeable parts um, and, and having sort of rudimentary assembly lines to construct clocks, which used to be extremely expensive. I mean, clocks, they were made by artisans. They were made by hand. They were these incredibly complex machines, a real sign of status, really owned by, by, by the affluent. And yet now, with mass production, um, clocks could be made at a pretty affordable price. The only problem for people like Chauncey Jerome is the British were in on this game first. The British were really good at making clocks too. They were probably a little bit better, a little bit more efficient. They probably had better economies of scale than Chauncey Jerome. He could make a decent clock for $10. But the British, they could make the same clock, same quality, for $8. So whose clock are you going to buy? You're going to buy the British one. Chauncey Jerome and people like him, they want, they want a tariff. They want a tax placed on the products we import from other countries. You know, you can imagine uh, in, in our sort of example of Chauncey Jerome, you can imagine him doing the math. His $8 clock, if there was, uh, a, a, if the British $8 clock had a, say, $4 tariff, how much would the British clock cost? Be up to $12. And how much does Chauncey Jerome's clock cost? I had said $10, but how much does it cost now? It's $11.50, right? So who's the winner? Chauncey Jerome is the winner. You know, arguably his workers are the winner, but who are the losers? Consumers are losers. But in addition, what are the British? What are the French? What are other nations going to do in response? We're going to put tariff on what we send to them. And what do we send to them? Cotton. Right? And, and, and there's a, a big debate over the tariff during the, the Jackson administration. And his vice president, John C. Calhoun, sort of leads the charge and is a spokesman for South Carolina, where people are, are, are beginning to say the tariff's unconstitutional. We, we shouldn't have a, a national economic policy, especially when it involves choosing sides, playing favorites, you know, selecting winners and selecting losers. Um, we shouldn't have a national economic policy um, that essentially takes from some to give to others. There's that famous Jefferson Day dinner that both attended. And uh, Jackson, um, you know, rose up and raised his glass and made a toast to the union. It must be preserved. 
And then there was Calhoun, and he stood up and he said, um, the Union, after our liberty, most dear. Well, uh, John C. Calhoun would uh, not remain as the vice president of Andrew Jackson. In Jackson's second term, he was replaced by Martin Van Buren. Um, people always say the presidency uh, wears people down, and you sometimes see before and after uh, pictures of, of American presidents. Um, I think it's fair to say that the vice presidency did the same thing at the start. John C. Calhoun is this dashing young man. Um, by the end, <laughs> things had changed. And things had changed in America as well. When you uh, think about the um, development of the United States across the West, every time uh, another Western territory would come up for statehood, the big question was, will it be a free state? Will it be a slave state? Will it be more like the North? Will it be more like the South? And uh, it's a controversy that would rage throughout um, the first half of the 19th century. Um, a lot of people in the North were against the war with Mexico, just to bring in Texas as a slave state. And then all of this land um, negotiated uh, uh, as part of American territory through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Nicholas P. Trist, the, the Jefferson's grandson-in-law, negotiated that treaty. And we bring in all this land in the Southwest. What's it going to be like? Is it gonna be more like the North? Is it gonna be more like the South? How will it affect the balance of power? And the balance of power seems so precarious, um, especially after sort of the meltdown of uh, what some historians might call the second party system. After the Jeffersonian Republicans and the Hamiltonian Federalists, you have the Jacksonian Democrats and the Whigs. But they begin to splinter and fall apart over the issue of slavery. And by 1860, you have four candidates running for office. And you can see the results. Abraham Lincoln, he only gets 40% of the popular vote, but he ends up getting 59% of the electoral vote. He's not even on the ballot in 10 Southern states. But he wins the presidency, and, and, and the South is, is beside itself, thinks that this is a horrible, horrible thing. Lincoln doesn't promise to abolish slavery. He seems to have no intention of abolishing slavery, but the Republican platform does call for limiting the expansion of slavery uh, into Western territories. And, and, and so the writing is on the wall that if America continues to expand, if we continue to bring in new states, the South will be a permanent electoral minority. And of course, the South already is a minority in terms of the population. Its free population is far less numerous than that of the North, where lots of people are moving in to, to, to get the, the great jobs um, that exist there. But of course, in the Senate, you know, where the states have equal representation, there was parity, and that will be lost. And a lot of Southerners are very upset about that. The Charleston Mercury, um, one of the leading sort of uh, radical newspapers in South Carolina, says that tea has been thrown overboard. The revolution of 1860 has been initiated. And by the end of the year, South Carolina would secede from the Union. Really terrible problem that Abraham Lincoln had to face. You feel sorry, you know, when President Obama was inaugurated, um, there was this big concert at the Lincoln Memorial. Bono sang to him. There were balls and uh, ticker tape. And, you know, it was wonderful. It was fantastic. Uh, Pepsi changed its logo. None of that. None of that for Abraham Lincoln. Um, when he was inaugurated, half the states had left the Union. You gotta worry about the poor man's self-esteem. He, uh, he said, uh, in all seriousness, he said in 1862 um, that for him, the Civil War, which of course began when the North refused 
to vacate Fort Sumter and the South fired upon it. He said that the Civil War um, for him was really all about union. If I could save the union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that, Lincoln said. And, and really in this, this wonderful uh, letter to, to Horace Greeley, um, he's laying out his game plan. I don't know if he's conscious of that, but in the beginning, he, he tries to entice southern states to come back into the Union by promising to, sleep, to free no slaves. And then with the Emancipation Proclamation, um, he says he's going to free the slaves in the rebellious southern states you know, where the Union has not yet taken over. In other words, Lincoln proclaims free slaves where he has no power to free the slaves, at least not at that moment through the Emancipation Proclamation. But then, of course, finally through the 13th Amendment, Lincoln frees all the slaves throughout the United States. In his mind, at least by his words, all sort of a, a tool, um, a technique to try to win this war, retain Northern support, um, and marshal the force ultimately necessary to bring the South back into the Union. You know, fortunately, there, there were a lot of people um, in the North who were very serious about abolition, um, who saw this as uh, a, a struggle um, of, of good against bad, of, of, you know, for the freedom of, of all these hundreds of thousands of people um, who others claim to own. Captain Henry Howell um, of the United States Army said, every soldier knows he is fighting not only for his own liberty, but even more for the liberty of the whole human race for all time to come. And that's a big ambition. And it's good that that's a big ambition because it was a big fight. More than 600,000 Americans died fighting this civil war. I mean, a, a, a calamitous occurrence for the United States that did have the benefit of freeing the slaves. But it was calamitous in a lot of other ways as well. Federal spending skyrocketed during the Civil War. The powers assumed by the federal government were magnified considerably fighting the Civil War. The government was seizing private property, seizing businesses. Lincoln, of course, suspended habeas corpus in Maryland because Maryland, he thought, might secede. And the capital of the United States of America would be surrounded by the Confederate States of America. We have our first federal income tax during the Civil War. We have our first national draft during the Civil War. James Madison was, was, was really right when he said that of all the enemies of true liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. War is almost never good for liberty. Almost never. Civil War, clearly a mixed bag. And, and, and the hubris that the Civil War gave to people, I think, is something that we would live with for a long time. To, to win this war was a huge achievement, a big deal. It required um, the marshalling of a lot of different people and a lot of um, force and a lot of organization and the creation of a lot of bureaucracy. And some people thought that because we had succeeded in doing this and defeating the South and bringing the South back into the Union, that, that there was nothing the government couldn't do. Indeed, people thought it could reconstruct the South. It could, if you put enough troops, sent enough people, had the right bureaucracy, spent the right amount of money, you can reconstruct the South and fundamentally change it. 
And if not make it more like the North, at least make it so that it would never want to secede again. And then in the 1880s, you have the Dawes Act, which is essentially an attempt to reconstruct Native Americans, to make them more like white people, to assimilate and integrate them into white society. I mean, there's an incredible amount of arrogance, really, that factors into these sorts of plans. And uh, it's the sort of arrogance that's displayed in the progressive era. We were talking about progressives last hour, earlier in the morning. You know, one of the leading progressives um, is the, uh, the uh, head practitioner and progenitor of scientific uh, management, Frederick Winslow Taylor. Um, he comes up with a set of ideas and plans and management techniques for industrial production. They're soon um, expanded and elaborated and adopted by people who want to use them to manage um, social systems um, and education and, 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 and apply them to politics. Taylor says, it is only through enforced standardization of methods, enforced adoptions of the best implements and working conditions, and enforced cooperation that this faster work can be assured. We wanted to increase production. And the duty of enforcing the adoption of standards and enforcing the cooperation rests with management alone. I can say, without the slightest hesitation, that the science of handling pig iron is so great that the man who is physically able to handle pig iron and is sufficiently phlegmatic and stupid to choose this for his occupation is rarely able to comprehend the science of handling pig iron. This is progressivism. People can't run their own lives. They can't run their own affairs. They need experts to do it for them. Teddy Roosevelt considered himself an expert. I have one piece of advice for him. When you're a little bit overweight, you probably shouldn't pose for photos next to large globes. <laughs> Woodrow Wilson considered him, himself to be an expert. He was president of Princeton University. What could he not do? You know, he considered himself the smartest man in all of America. And, and yet we know what the progressives did. We, we know the fear that was struck in their hearts by the arrival of new immigrants from exotic, far off, foreign places like Italy. You know, public schools, public education, we're seen in part as, a, as not so much as a way to, to teach people and educate people, but to tame people, to assimilate people, to indoctrinate people, to make them safe for the, the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant America that the progressives represented. The, the movement toward prohibition of alcohol is similar. I mean, we have this, the wonderful temperance movement of the 19th century. Voluntary, people recognizing that maybe alcohol isn't right for me. Maybe alcohol does, does bad things to me. Maybe I want to uh, pledge voluntarily to forswear alcohol. But of course, that's not good enough for the progressives. They want to make it mandatory. They want to make it compulsory with all the negative consequences that befall it. And we know Woodrow Wilson um, nationalized segregation. You know, he brought segregation to the federal government. And it's Woodrow Wilson who brings us into the First World War. And the First World War, of course, brings about even more government controls over the economy and even more government uh, uh, injuries to civil liberty. And then, of course, 
You know, we have the New Deal and the presidency of Franklin Roosevelt and uh, the Second World War and all of the government interventions that came with that. We have the Great Society. Here's Lyndon Johnson after doing one of his favorite things, signing legislation. And, and you know, for a while it seems like it, it doesn't really matter what party is in power. All parties are intent upon growing government. You could be a Democrat like Johnson. You could be a Republican like Lincoln or evidently Elvis, who I believe was photographed um, here at the White House receiving um, a special like medal from the uh, Department of or the Bureau of Drug uh, Abuse Prevention. So anyway, <laughs> it's wonderful what our government does. Um, you know, the tide, uh, it, it can turn. The pendulum does swing back. Um, some of us are old enough to remember Ronald Reagan and Ronald Reagan's campaign in 1980. You know, he, he said the government wasn't the solution. The government was a problem. The solution was to get the government off of people's backs. And you do begin to see deregulation. And you do begin to say, see people making pro-liberty arguments and, 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 and talking about shrink, shrinking government. And, and shrinking taxes. But of course, um, the forces for the growth of government are numerous. And again, they're in both parties. And uh, it's really up to us. It's really up to the American people and our government to make clear what we want our government to do. You know, unfortunately, the American people, we're not silent. We're not incapable of delivering a message. Some of us, perhaps, um, don't have the same message. But, but some of us, at least, remember the, the principles the country was founded upon. Some of us think that the purpose of government is as John Locke said it was, is as Thomas Jefferson said it was. The purpose of government is not to take people's stuff and shuffle it around. The purpose of government is to protect individual rights. Thank you very much. So if I'm not mistaken, we have just a few minutes for, for questions. Hello, sir. You were talking about a little bit earlier how there are cycles of history. There is an also the alternate view of history in that it it's ultimately progressing towards something, some predestined goal, whatever it may be, whoever the person is uh, projecting into the particular progress. What would you propose would be sort of an in-between between these cycles of history, which is kind of taken on by people like Oswald Spengler versus yeah. the progress, which is championed by modern progressivism? I don't, I mean, I don't know. I, first of all, you know, as a historian, I'm not, uh, I'm not selecting things to endorse them personally. Now, I don't know if there are cycles of history. I don't know if the classical Republican view of, you know, history rising from the state of nature and going to the empire and invariably falling. I, I don't know if that's really true. Um, I can think of examples where that seems true, but um, I don't think anything is always true. And I'm not a Whig um, historian in, in, in that uh, I don't think that history is this never-ending story of progress and forward and upward movement. Um, I do believe in contingency, and I do believe that individuals matter. You know, one of the, 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 my favorite films, um, and I usually show this at the end of the fall semester to my students, um, because I think it makes a powerful point about history. One of my favorite films is It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, in the film, you know, Jimmy Stewart, he lives in this little town named Bedford Falls in, in upstate New York. And, 
you know, he runs the local savings and loan uh, that his dad used to run. And through no fault of his own, you know, there's some uh, calamities and his uncle loses some, some money that was on deposit at the bank. And, um, you know, people are blaming uh, Jimmy Stewart's character, George Bailey, and he might go to jail. And um, he wishes that he had never been born. And so this is where we suspend our disbelief. The guardian angel, Clarence, gives him his wish. George Bailey has never been born, and he gets to see what Bedford Falls would be like had he never lived there. Pottersville. It's Pottersville. You know, Mr. Potter, you know, the, the bad, um, deceitful, duplicitous, crony, capitalist, liar, swindler takes charge. And it's not Bedford Falls anymore, it's Pottersville, right? And, and instead of being a sweet, um, nice upstate New York town, um, the main street looks like it's just, just beyond the gates of a military base. It's, it's, it's terrible, right? It's awful. And, and I think there's some truth to that. I think individuals make a difference. Um, and, and that kind of inspires me. And it inspires me especially when I, when I meet so many of you. Uh, yes? Yes, uh, I have a question regarding uh, the early, or the political, the political parties in the United States uh, at a very early stage because like, the Democratic Party is known as the party of Jefferson and I, I think that most of us would agree that that's not really a fair assessment. Right. Uh, but I was wondering more about the early Republican Party because the GOP was founded in 1854. Uh, and I was wondering, considering that it was, it, it had kind of sprung out of the Whig Party, like Lincoln, for example, had been a yeah. congressman for the Whig Party. So how much of that early Jeffersonian Republicanism could you see in the early GOP? Yeah, I, th I think that both modern, you know, both the early uh, GOP and the modern GOP and the early Democratic Party and the modern Democratic Party, um, th I think they all have some, uh, some justification in, in claiming uh, Jefferson as, as their progenitor, um, in part because the Federalists really didn't leave any errors. Uh, you know, in, in general, uh, the Federalist Party kind of disappeared. It kind of went away. I mean, the War of 1812, the Federalist Party made... Uh, a number of kind of disastrous political calculations. One was fairly actively resisting the war for 1812. Um, when news arrived that General Jackson had won at New Orleans, when news arrived that through the Treaty of Ghent, you know, the, the war between U the US and Britain had ended, news also arrived from Hartford, con Connecticut of a convention where New England Federalists had gathered together and, and whispered about the possibility of secession in protest of this war. And that was really sort of the, the, the last set of nails driven into the Federalist coffin. And for a while during the, the so-called era of good feelings, everybody at least claimed to be a Jeffersonian Republican. Um, so, you know, if you were gonna do a family tree, I think you could connect Jefferson uh, to all of, of, of these parties. And as you, you know, say, the Republicans kind of emerged out of the, the modern day Republicans sort of emerged out of uh, the Whig party. Um, certainly there were plenty of Federalists uh, who were Whigs you know, former Federalists. Certainly there were um, plenty of uh, former Jeffersonian Republicans who became Democrats. Um, but as a whole, I think, you know, both parties can, can claim some connection uh, to Jefferson and Madison at the start. Thank you. Time for one more? One more. Okay. Um, a lot of us in this room probably refer to ourselves as constitutionalists, and um, several of the Supreme Court justices say that the, you know they have a strict interpretation of the Constitution. However, as you mentioned, even the most important founding fathers—Adams, Hamilton, 
found ways to get around the Constitution, have a, a broad interpretation of the Constitution. Yeah. How does that impact a modern way of trying to justify a strict interpretation of the Constitution? Well, I still think that the strict interpretation is just morally and ethically right. I mean, it, you know, Madison said, look, the Constitution is a contract. And Madison had a, had a really interesting take on uh, who got to decide what the Constitution meant. Madison, a uh, pretty humble man, um, you know, unlike Woodrow Wilson, Madison, also very smart, um, also a Princeton guy. But, but Madison said, uh, I, I'm not going to deign to say what is constitutional. I didn't ratify it. If you want to know what's constitutional, you need to know what was on the minds of the state ratifying conventions. You need to know what they think they agreed to, because what they think they agreed to is what they agreed to. So look at the notes of the state ratifying conventions. You know, see why they were, were adopting this constitution. Look at their debates. If it's clear that they think that there is not going to be a national bank, then it, national bank is, is not constitutional. They're the, the parties that entered into this, um, and it's what was in their minds that should get to de uh, decide, you know, what the meaning of this, this contract really is. So kind of an interesting um, method of, of constitutional interpretation that he brought forth, and, and really kind of a humble one. All right, well, thanks so much.